0: Welcome into the 48 minutes podcast on Believe, where you stay up to date in 48 on all things NBA. I'm Ross Geiger, the host of the show, joined alongside my two co-hosts, Bruce Bernstein of Pure Hoops Media, and World B Michael Freer. This is episode number 16, and today we're thrilled to be joined by special guest Dave Wool. And folks, how's this for an NBA career resume? Dave was an NBA player an NBA general manager, NBA coach, and now he's a welcome guest on the 48 Minutes podcast. Dave, thanks for joining us here tonight. And uh, did I miss anything that you've done?
1: Uh, No, I think that's it. I just never got around to selling tickets. Maybe that would have been
0: next. (laughs) Okay. All right. Perfect. Well, I'm glad you're here with us tonight. Really appreciate the time. Looking forward to having some fun talking ball with you. And we're just going to dive right into things. No opening tip tonight. We're going to get started with our first quarter with yesterday's big trade. Um, Let's just get right to it and start with kind of the trade request. There were three parts of this. We'll start with part one. Let's talk a little bit about Kyrie's trade request. And Bruce, I'll go ahead and kick it off to you. And uh, what were your initial reactions just seeing that scroll across your Twitter feed more more than likely that uh,
2: he had requested a trade? Believe it or not, the first thing I thought about was he's leaving KD behind KD, who wanted to play with him, who's always had his back when it came to the negative things that Kyrie has done, uh, he did him dirty. And I'm really, you know, not shocked, but uh, I'm sure KD, if he took some truth serum, would probably say he was a little bit disappointed.
0: No doubt. I mean, I think it was a shock to all of us. What would you have to think about that?
3: Well, I mean, it was a surprise given the timing, and it wasn't—it um, wasn't a name you heard about in terms of this happening. But then, you know, you after 30 seconds, you nothing shocks you about Kyrie anymore, and you just, you know, you take a breath and you realize, hey, this is who he is. It's—it's it's, I got to get mine, and that's who he is. And at the end of the day, that's—that's that's his legacy. All the other stuff on the court or whatever, even the silliness off the court his legacy is going to be, to me, it's
0: all about me. Absolutely. And uh, Dave, with your experience, very curious what you have to say about this entire situation, but you know, what, as far as the requests are concerned and and just your experience being a front office executive, um, what was your initial reaction?
1: I I thought it was the typical behavior uh, from Kyrie. You know, they, They they were having some contract talks, I think, on the extension. He didn't like some stipulations they put on it. And it was like, you know, okay, my tantrum is going to be that I want to trade. And I think he felt that if I ask for a trade, I'll sit out the next game. They're not going to want to have me sitting out just for the rest of the season. So that really forced their hand, too. But again, I, I think for a good portion of his career, why he's he's had to move on from team to team is he really has no self-awareness how a lot of his actions affect both his teammates, um, like we referred to with KD, or the organization as a whole. And so I thought it was just a sort of expected behavior from him.
0: Yeah, and I, I would definitely echo that thought from you, Dave. I. I Nothing really surprises me with Kyrie anymore, especially with how this past year has gone in Brooklyn. And I think it was just enough is enough. And um, I, I'm glad they had some swift moving on, on, on trying to get a deal done and didn't let this linger until Thursday to affect even more important games for this Brooklyn Nets team. Now, let's talk about the actual deal that was made. Of course, this was uh, uh, an agreement with the Dallas Mavericks, which sent Spencer Dinwiddie along with uh, Dorian Finney-Smith, who I had mentioned on a uh, prior podcast that uh, was available for trade and, and a, few, a couple draft picks, so, of course, along with Kyrie, Markeith Morris uh, to make the money work was, was sent to Brooklyn. And Dave, we'll start with you. What did you think of that deal? And uh, uh, if you had to pick a winner uh, initially, who would, who would you say won that deal?
1: You know, I, I really think it's going to be hard to pick a winner because of his past behavior. Okay. Um, if he had been a guy that you know didn't have a lot of these problems with almost every team he's been with, I think you would just look at the talent acquisition. I, I think it's a big, very high risk, very high reward for the Mavericks, and the risk factors are that you're getting a, a very talented player who can. I mean, I'm sorry. The reward part of it is you're getting a very talented player who can score in numerous ways. They've really struggled offensively when Luca has had to go to the bench for a rest, and now. Kyrie comes in and and or not comes in, but is in the game and can take over the offense and probably really help them there. Uh, they get another closer down the stretch of big games, and he certainly is not never going to hesitate to take the the big shot. So those are really the potential rewards. The the risks uh, I mentioned the self awareness. Um, he's been a distraction everywhere he's gone, and he seems to believe his words and actions should not. Allow him to be held accountable because he's a quote artist. Um, he says he's a he wants to be a leader. He thinks of himself as a leader, but he truly has no concept of what leadership actually is and how you you have to act as a leader. Um, to keep him, they're going to have to make a huge investment because he's already said he wants a max contract. So I think it really comes down to that. That Cuban is taking this risk that talent trumps um, culture and chemistry. And because the GM and, uh, Jason Kidd, the coach have a good relationship, I guess, with him, that they can work with him as a talent to fit in and everything will work out fine. So, uh, I, I think that's where they are and why they made the deal because Dallas didn't have another Avenue to take another step forward. I think.
0: Yeah, they're definitely looking for, uh, This season, trying to uh, not waste another historic Luca year as far as how he has uh, been performing all season long and definitely don't want that to go to waste. World B, I'm actually curious to hear from you. As in our uh, previous podcast, you had stated that, you know, of course you can never judge a deal just from what initially occurs, but if you had to do so right now, what were your thoughts from uh, the package that was sent towards Brooklyn and uh, what did you think of the trade?
3: Um, uh, I thought, and we talked about it on Twitter, whatever. I'm of the belief that it can actually work for both teams
2: okay. from
3: the Dallas. And we've talked about before the West is over the last month or so has gotten more wide open than we ever figured it to be. We thought it was going to be top heavy with the top two teams and maybe the Suns. the baby, you know, this is like a month ago, we still had hopes on the Suns. We still had hopes on the warriors along with the Grizzlies and the, and the nuggets. It's really what it's gotten a lot wider, a lot more open now. And if I'm Dallas, I'm seeing it slip away. I'm seeing an opportunity to return to at least a conference finals slip away because I don't have enough support for Luca to get me points. As Dave said, when he goes to the bench or whatever, when he goes, when he's off the court, Dallas scores about 12 fewer points per hundred possessions. That's a huge amount to be down offensively, you know, efficiency wise off the court. So if I'm Dallas, I'm looking at it like I got a chance to have another elite scorer to go along with Luca. Now, how they make it work, I don't think the ball dominant thing is as big a deal as other people may think. It's worked before, and I think you know they're going to look to outscore teams. Obviously, they're not going to be uh, an elite defensive um, team by any stretch. Now with Kyrie and Luca, who's never noted for defense to begin with. Uh, for, quickly from the Nets thing. I think they can turn into a serious lockdown team when everybody gets healthy and they have an opportunity with the guys that he have coming in along with the guys that are there. They were playing really good defense before this mess happened. And before KD got hurt too, they were turning into a top notch defensive team to go along with an elite offense, which is why they were, you know, suddenly becoming a contender in the East. Now, you know, they're not going to have the offensive firepower. So maybe, they can turn into a lockdown defensive team. I think it can work for both teams.
2: You know, I know there's concern, and World B, you briefly addressed it when it came to the whole you've got two ball dominant guys in the backcourt now. And I'm sure Luca is capable of playing off the ball. Uh, but of course, you know, then his assist numbers are likely to go down. I mean, he's averaging, you know, almost nine assists or over eight assists whatever. So and and one of the reasons he's an MVP candidate is because of his high rebound and high assist numbers in addition to the obvious scoring. And I don't think the rebound numbers are going to go down, but I'm just wondering, I mean, and and this is really sort of addressed to you Dave. Their head coach Jason Kidd, uh who is one of the great point guards in the history of the game, what do you think he's going to have to do? How is how is he going to have to modify how Luca is playing and how Kyrie is going to mesh with Luca. What do you think from a coaching standpoint he needs to do to make this thing work? Uh,
1: I really think that's a great question, Bruce, because I think that's one of the key factors whether this will succeed well for them, assuming uh, Kyrie maintains you know no distraction and other things is you've got both those guys playing on the court at the same time. They both love to have the ball in their hands. Um, You saw this a little bit when you had LeBron and Wade down in Miami. It took them a while to get used to it. For a little while, they were doing my turn, your turn, my turn. And then Dwayne actually said to LeBron, hey, I'll work off you. We can't do this sharing bit. I'll just play off of you. And I think with Kyrie and Luca, the one thing that hopefully doesn't happen is what happened when Kyrie first got to Cleveland with LeBron Uh, He even admitted at one point, he said, I wanted to be the star. I wanted to be the player that brought the championship, even though you had LeBron on your team. So hopefully he's not coming to Dallas thinking, well, Luca's a young guy. I can teach him some things. I'll lead him and everything. Hopefully they can just figure out, hey, it's not my turn, your turn. We'll just see how the game is going and we'll read what the flow of the game is and I think the tough part for Jason is going to be more end of game, who takes the last shot, who has the ball the last couple minutes. You know, Luke is just a tremendous like that. But, you know, Kyrie can find ways to score that you watch him and you don't know how he got to the hoop. So that's going to be the challenge, I think, I think for Jason. And it may take, you know, it could take a, a number of games before they feel both of them feel comfortable with it.
0: And Bruce, do you buy that? Do you think uh, this could be a pairing that works out successfully in Dallas long term, or um, what are your initial concerns with with this deal? Is it is it something that um, th- that the Mavs took a big swing and this could be a huge miss, or or, or you think this could be uh, something in, in the instant future is going to work out there in Dallas?
2: My concern is that Luca has demonstrated such a brilliant all around game that he's going to be the one who probably has to adjust more and i don't know if that's going to you know make him feel good about things i don't know i mean look in in the long term if you're Dallas i mean lucas your guy i mean kyrie is a guy luca is your guy and i'm concerned that if luca feels like he has to sacrifice too much um that's where I could see things going very badly
3: here's one thing i okay. will here's one thing I'll mention on this you about Luca is everything you say I, I totally agree with but in the last couple of weeks he had to leave a game early in the first half because of an ankle injury and he never returned and then last week he had to leave a game because of a heel injury and he never returned thinking the third quarter or whatever and I don't know I obviously I'm the, I'm just speculating I can't read his mind or whatever but these are situations when you're the guy and you don't have. I don't say he doesn't have anything else. Spencer Dinwiddie was a pretty good offensive player there. You know when they traded about 17 a game, so it's not as if he he was a liability or anything. But if Luca, you didn't have another superstar. If I'm getting hurt all the time here and I'm seeing a wide open West start to slip away from us. maybe I am adjusting to try and make this work, uh, you know, to try and get us back to where they were at the conference finals.
1: I think it's going to end up um, as they figure out in the close games, because I could see Luca being happy. Hey, I got a guy when I go out, whether I have a little injury or just I I need a blow, you know, I I can't go 15, 18 minutes straight every night before I get a break. I think he could really think that's a really good thing. But let's say you get down to these close games now, And Kyrie's forcing up shots and Luca's just kind of on the perimeter. Or now Luca says, well, I'm going to take the ball and I want to do my thing. You know, so I really think it's going to be in those crunch time minutes when both of them have the potential to win a game. How they kind of figure that out without being upset at the other guy or upsetting their teammates because their teammates see they can't figure it out either without hurting the team. I I think that's going to be the crucial thing. If they can figure it out, they're going to be very tough in close games.
2: Is their defense going to suffer with Kyrie versus, let's say, um, uh, Spencer Dinwiddie, who had a little bit more size, and 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 Dorian Finney-Smith? I mean, how are they going to take a step backwards on defense, Dave?
1: Yeah, I mean, when you lose two guys that are were pretty good defenders, I think you're going to lose some things. But you're also weighing, you know, how much you're getting offensively consistently night after night, how much rest you're giving. Luca and, and rest in, in relation to the playoffs coming up too. It's not just for the next game or the next week, you know, every 10 minutes we can save, um, for Luca is 10 more minutes going into the playoffs that, you know, maybe he feels fresher. So, um, I, I think, and they may decide to play at a little quicker pace. They, you know, push the tempo a little bit more Kyrie in the open floor is brutal. And so, is, so is Luca. So, I do think maybe they're not quite as good when you're using the defensive you know, analytics, but they could be a really good offensive team.
0: Yeah. That defense actually concerns me as well. Uh, I, I've honestly got more complaints uh, on this trade than I do praise. I think, you know, of course, the story out of Dallas all year long has been how are they going to improve this team? What can they do to keep Luca happy? And overall, I don't see this big trade solving any of their current problems. I think, To me, it it rather complicates things. I mean, they just went out and acquired a star guard that needs the the ball in his hand to be dominant. And that's going to take it out of Luca's hands. And and Luca's the greatest in the game this year, if you're looking at a a point guard with the ball in his hands, operating out of the the high pick and roll. And undoubtedly, this weekend's their defense. I mean, losing Dorian Finney-Smith, replacing uh, Dinwiddie defensively, who has some length, for a Kyrie who's not always bought in and certainly won't be bought in if he's not getting the touches he thinks he rightfully deserves if Luca's taking over. Uh, and the question I have for you, Dave, is this. is If Kyrie and Harden didn't click and if that didn't work, tell me why I should believe that Kyrie's pairing with Luka will.
1: Well, I, I go back even a little further. When he went to Boston, you've got two yep. young guys, Tatum and Brown, I mean, if you're a point guard, you're going, oh, my God, I got two great wings to to play with. But that was where he said, "Okay, I'm going to be the leader to these young guys. I'm going to show them how you do it. And he doesn't understand leadership. So they wanted him out of Boston so quickly. It was, you know, they would have bought his train ticket. You know, don't let the door hit you on your way out because they thought he was terrible for team chemistry and, you know, the culture they were trying to build there. So he's he's got a resume of struggling with relationships that affect a team where he can't put himself in a situation where he understands how his actions can affect everybody. And it doesn't seem like that bothers him
2: at all. So you mentioned what, what you mentioned just now begs this question. He's now left three franchises in various negative ways. Why trust him?
1: Well, I think you get to a point sometimes where desperation comes in. You know, you've got Luca, The clock's ticking with Luca. How happy is Luca going to be getting knocked out in the first or second round going forward? Um, Do you have a chance to sign any free agents in the next year or two that are going to make a difference, a big difference in in Dallas's chances to move forward towards a, a title? Um, if not, you tend to, like I said, it's a choice of talent over culture and, culture and chemistry. Uh, I'll give you an example. When, when I was with Boston as an assistant GM and we made the trade for KG, we knew with KG we were getting both. We're getting both talent and a guy who had team above all else. It was an easy decision. You don't have that decision with Kyrie. Now, the one no. thing they may have as a factor is he has a big extension, I guess, on the line if he behaves himself and he has a really good year finishing out this year, looks like he's the perfect trade they could have made. Now he gets the extension. Will the following season be the one where he reverts back to Kyrie, where they owe him, I don't know, $22 billion or whatever (laughs) the extension is worth, but he's, he's secured the extension now. So he might be on his good behavior for another 40 games and playoffs and, uh, then he'll revert back once the deal's signed. That's That's got to be – if I'm Cuban, that would be a concern for me.
0: Yeah, I really think uh, Mark Cuban kind of jumped the gun on this one. If I were the Mavericks, I would have tried to get a established big man in this league that is committed to rolling hard to the basket, someone who's a lob threat, plays above the rim, or a uh, wing player that is self-sufficient offensively, not just a spot-up guy. Um, I, don't, I don't know if bringing – Uh, a guy like Kyrie and is going to, going to solve the issue, but we'll, we'll definitely find out. And it's certainly a lot more interesting. As you mentioned, Dave, Kyrie's kind of looked at as a rental right now, right? I mean, he's got a lot to prove before he gets a big deal here and uh, you know, hopefully things work out The The good news for the Mavericks is Jason Kidd um, is notoriously noted as a guy that of course does well managing egos with players and of course has that relatability as a, former Hall of Fame point guard. Um, So uh, he's got a big test ahead of him. And Luka Doncic also has a big test ahead of him as far as leadership's concerned, welcoming Kyrie and also making sure that, you know, things work out as they should with, with the talent uh, that they have from that tandem guard set.
1: Wouldn't you love to be a fly on the wall in the first conversations between Luca and Kyrie? And then when they go their separate ways, be a fly on the wall for the conversations when they talk to yes. everybody else. <laughs> yeah.
2: So do you think, so let's, let's quickly shift to, to the other side. Did Brooklyn get a fair return?
1: Well, I like, you know, I've always liked Spencer Dinwiddie. And, you know, you got some seconds thrown in there. Um, the first round pick. You know, it's going to depend what they do with the first round pick. Is there a player they get? Do they throw that into a trade to get a player? Um, You know, I I think a little bit this is what's going to happen, too, is what does KD now want to do? He's now the, the, you know, the guy that comes out of the foxhole and the other two guys that were supposed to be in the foxhole with him aren't there anymore. And he's got to be sitting there going, what now? Why am I staying in New Jersey? I don't have a chance for a title here. You know, I can't carry this team on my back by myself. Um, does he ask for a trade? Or at the end of the season, does he ask for a trade? He, he's the good soldier for the rest of the year. You know, So so it's going to be interesting what he, he decides to do. Like KG, when we got KG in Boston, KG was very, very loyal to Minnesota. And he was really the main guy most of the time. They had the one year where they had Sam Cassell and Spreewell, and they did really well. But other than that, KG, you know, was first round and out a lot of times. But eventually, I think he just saw, hey, I'm just I'm I'm out bouncing out in the first round. I really want a chance to win a title. And he finally saw that in Boston after we made the Ray Allen deal, and we had Paul Pierce. So I don't know if K, KD thinks the same way. And he goes, I, I'm my years are going by. I want another chance. I want a chance to win a title. He hasn't won one yet.
3: By the way, yeah. The, he, uh- the, the big experiment by Brooklyn can only be viewed as a colossal failure at this point. The Harden and Kyrie and KD—they got all of 14 games on the court together yeah. with them over yeah. almost two and a half Good years. Point. Fourteen games—that's what all this mess got you. And KD's left holding, you know, the proverbial bag. As yeah. in the end, it's—I uh, think they. I don't know what you know, all the other deals that were available. I don't know if LA was really a serious option. Um, so I think, like Dave said, I'm a fan of Spencer Dinwiddie. I think uh, Smith, Finney Smith can be a, a solid player for them. But at the end of the day, like we, t- they're role players almost. Right. It's like where are, the, where are the stars, as Dave said, to go along with KD? On the other hand, they had the stars and it was a, yeah. a zoo in there. So you know, maybe they can convince them. I like Sean Marks. I think he's a pretty good GM, mm-hmm. uh, and I think they they turned Brooklyn into something a few years before they came board. wasn't anything going on really there. Um, there was no buzz about them, and now you know, now they have a chance to to do something. I like the guys to get them. I don't think they can be as good as if they had a KD with his head on straight or a Kyrie with his head on straight to play along with uh, KD. But I think they got as good as they probably could get.
2: So yeah, there was a so rumor to today. Go ahead. go ahead, Bruce. I'm sorry. Anyway, no, I was just going to say. So so Stephen A. Smith, our good pal, put a rumor out there today on first take that uh, KD for Jalen Brown, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Do you really think Brad Stevens?
0: We lost you there, Bruce. Do you want to we repeat the question David. real
2: quick? Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, I don't I don't know what happened. There were Stephen A. Smith had a rumor out on first take today that there was some KD for Jalen Brown thing being discussed. I can't imagine Brad Stevens would make that move, especially midpoint of the season. What do you think, Dave?
1: I think you're going to see a lot of rumors of um, teams that are in the running to get KD. I think you're gonna see that, and uh, it's uh, most of them are gonna be just like that Stephen Smith rumor. Um, I, I think if KD is going to try and get traded, he's going to basically try and ask Sean, hey, look, I've been the loyal guy here. Get me to a contender. you know, Trade me to a contender somewhere. And look, let's face it, um, and we can get into this later if we talk about LeBron too being traded, is there are a lot of teams that KD could make a huge change in a good or very good team to the next step. And the question is, you know, will will that team want him? Will they be able to do the salary cap and f- make that fit? But KD would help a lot of the the good teams to become very good and the very good teams to take another step forward too. So I think there'll be a number of teams that he could really help. Hey, Dave, I got a quick question. Does, if you're the Nets front
3: office, does it do – but, does it do them better for in terms of getting the better deal to wait to the off season or do you make a trade right now you know before Thursday or whatever or you know it's, it's what's the better move for yeah. the net? I obviously that you don't know the offers, you don't know their rumors like right. you say so we don't really know. but is it worth it for the Nets to wait it out, I guess?
1: yeah, I think I think you hit on the head though. I think it depends what the offers are. if you' get a couple teams that really feel boy, we're just one KD player away. From getting to the conference finals or maybe getting into the NBA finals, I think they really try and get the deal done now and not waste that opportunity. It gives them another 40, 50 games to indoctrinate KD if they're going to try and sign him and keep him long term. So I think it would just depend on what deals Sean can can get put on the table for KD um, before they make a decision.
0: Yeah, and another interesting rumor came out today before the deal officially got finalized. It looked like uh, the Nets were trying to make this a three-team trade and had discussions with the Toronto Raptors in regards to uh, Fred Van Fleet, who's going to be a free agent at the end of the year. Um, Another interesting offer that was reported by uh, TNT sideline uh, reporter Chris Haynes was that the Suns had offered Jay Crowder and Chris Paul. So potentially the Suns kind of showed their cards there with what they think of Chris Paul, we've been asking all year long about whether or not he still has anything left in the tank. It seems like the Suns appear to want to get off that contract as he is, uh, you know, expected to receive some big money in the in the years to come. Uh, so there's a lot of interesting guys out there that are starting to surface. Fred Van Fleet, Chris Paul, obviously Kevin Durant's in the center of that. And as we move into our second quarter here, Dave, uh, let's talk about another guy in LeBron James. He is just 36 points away from passing Kareem Abdul-Jabbar as the NBA's all-time leading scorer. And, you know, Dave, Bruce brought it to my attention that you had the privilege to coach Kareem as a member of Pat Riley's staff with the Lakers. So how about you just start out and tell us a little bit about what that experience was like and how you're feeling heading into this historic moment for LeBron?
1: Well, first of all, Kareem, Kareem had a reputation with the media that he was standoffish and kind of aloof and everything. But it was just the opposite with the team. He had a great dry sense of humor. He engaged (laughs) with guys. And what was interesting to me when I first got there, I was there um, 82 through 85, and we won in 85 in Boston. Uh, In that locker room, we had a bunch of young guys. And we had Magic and and Byron, and we had uh, Michael Cooper and guys. and, And so there was this young group with a lot of energy. Then you had Kurt Rambis and Mitch Kupchak were always in the corner yelling at each other. And Kareem was like the eye of the storm. He literally he wouldn't go out on the court like a lot of guys do to get their pre pregame working, because what was he going to work on? His sky hook. He, he <laughs> yeah. shot about forty thousand of them. You know how to do that. He would sit in his locker and read a book, and all this action is going on around him, but they would leave him alone. And then when Pat would come in to start his pregame, Kareem would just fold his book up, and he was ready to go. He was a total professional, <laughs> great guy. And in that 85 championship, I mean, he got the MVP. I mean, he was just unbelievable. He was 30, I think, 37 years old or maybe a little bit past wow. that. Yep. But he, he was just so much fun to be around because his whole persona was totally different um, than what the media saw. And you could talk to him about anything. And if you found a topic that he was really interested in, man, he, he'd talk your ear off. So, so I loved <laughs> being around him for the, that time.
0: And what do you think about LeBron right now uh, on the brink of surpassing Kareem as the all-time leading scorer? Of course, LeBron was a high school prodigy um, out of Akron, Ohio, and is there a part of you just even knowing how good he was and the hype behind him as a as a uh, high school kid? Uh, are you surprised that, that he's reached this peak of where he's about to surpass uh, the scoring record, or uh, is this no surprise to you based on just his career trajectory and who he was when he was coming out of high school?
1: Oh, I, I, th- I think it's a surprise to most people. Um, I didn't really see him play in high school, saw him when he first came in the league, and and I, like most people, were totally impressed with his body, you know, at mm-hmm. that age. And what I think allowed him to get where he is was not just his, his natural talent, but he continued to work at it, but he took care of his body. He became a professional. And sometimes that's hard for young guys. You know, they they don't quite get it how to take care of their body or they want to go out to the the club uh, the night before a game or something. I think the one thing throughout uh, LeBron's years has been he's recognized even more and more each year how to take care of his body as he gets older. And Kareem was literally the same way. He was doing yoga and jumping rope and doing other things when guys, you know, kind of looked at that stuff and said, oh, that can't help you you know, and, and so I think it's as much a testimony to his longevity, like Kareem, you know, he's what in his 19th Kareem played, I think 20. I mean, you have to be healthy to accomplish the things those guys are accomplishing. And I think right now, LeBron's even playing at such a high level. I don't, I don't know that many people would have expected at 38, he's throwing 40, you know, 40 points at times, you know, on on the board.
2: I think, Most people would probably agree, and tell me if you disagree with this, that probably the three greatest players in NBA history at this point would have to be, in no particular order, Kareem, Michael Jordan, and LeBron. Now, we know that the center position has evolved, and we talked a little about this last week on our podcast, and you and I talked about it on the phone the other day. So Kareem had the unstoppable sky hook, which he took from close to the hoop, and he also took it from like 15 feet away. I mean, he made a lot of those things from 15 feet. <laughs> right. And and but he made his first and only three-pointer at the age of 39. And it was probably when the shot clock was winding down. He probably just threw it up and it went in. But did Kareem have enough of a shooting touch other than the sky hook that if he were in today's NBA, he would be able to step out and make three-pointers or Was that he just a man of the past?
1: Yeah, and this came about a conversation Bruce and I were having because I said the one thing that's tilted this career scoring ranking for a lot of players, you know, uh, when analytics kind of started to creep into basketball in 2007, I believe, okay, and all of a sudden the three-point shot really got validated as more valuable than a long two or a mid-range shot. Um, If you look at LeBron, LeBron has made 2,233 threes. So he got an extra point for each of those, in essence. Okay, and and Kareem, I think, was like uh, Bruce was saying, one for eighteen or something. And I don't think Kareem would be out there on the perimeter because he was unstoppable, you know, inside. But a lot of the players who learned how now they were now they're taking eight, nine, ten, twelve threes. Think of Larry Bird. Larry, I think, averaged under three point attempts, three three point attempts, per game. One of the greatest probably shooters, if he was in today's, Larry would be shooting a dozen three-pointers. So my thought was there should be two lists. There should be the list that counts everything just like we do now. And then there should be another list, call it the asterisk list, where you take that bonus point off for every three-pointer made. And if you do that, LeBron is now 2,233 points still behind Kareem. So he probably doesn't get to break his record till either next season or the year after, I'm sure he's gonna break it and it's a great achievement. But if you you go look at like the top 50 ranked scores and you take away the threes, there's definitely some juggling on that list just because yeah. of the availability and no other sport has that. You don't get a extra point on your touchdown if it's a 50 yards or more run. You know, if a field goal is a little longer you don't get four instead of three points. So it's a, it's an odd thing in basketball in terms of the total rankings.
0: Yeah, I wonder where that would leave Steph Curry as well uh, on the topic of that with three pointers. But that's a great point there, Dave. And uh, we definitely need to ask this on the show. I know our listeners would love to hear your response to this. Um, World B and I had a conversation in regards to, you know, what does LeBron have to do outside of possibly winning another championship to overtake Michael Jordan as the greatest of all time? Uh, I personally think it's just continuing to to defeat father time as he is now playing such incredible basketball at age 38. If he's able to average 25 points per game until he's 40, I think that that would probably much seal the deal for LeBron. But what's your thought on on, on that GOAT comparison? And uh, does LeBron have a chance or do you think Jordan still has that in the bag?
1: I, I think MJ's solidified forever in that position. I just think there's yeah. You know, when he came in, the league was struggling a little bit. And, you know, um, he did that. He's had the Jordan brand. He's been that ambassador off the court. Um, he, They won six straight titles when he was on the Bulls. I mean, I don't think it's a matter of LeBron winning another title. I think LeBron, if Michael's number one, LeBron's probably 1A. You know, I, I just think especially people who are older and saw Michael play a lot or have just been resistant to, taking him out of that first place. And I think it's really hard. Like when Bruce even talks about the top three, I mean, where's Kobe go. I mean, you know, on on any given day, my top three might change depending on how I feel when I wake up and how good my coffee was.
2: (laughs) Right. I mean, how about, how about Wilt, you know, how about Tim Duncan, right? I mean, Tim Duncan's the guy who never ever is in the goat conversation, but, but, you know, (laughs) certainly, uh, would be, um, I would say, and I just have one quick final point about this. LeBron's versatility and his unselfishness, to me, sets him apart from the others. He is the only player in NBA history with 10,000 rebounds and 10,000 assists. Nobody else is close. So to me, that's like where – so he's going to be the all-time scoring leader except for the asterisk that Dave's putting next to him <laughs> yeah, <laughs> with, with, with 10,000 rebounds and 10,000 assists to me. I mean, he's been my goat for a long time, but uh, I just wanted to throw that one out there. Yeah. I,
1: th- I, I think you can make arguments for him. And I, like to me, it's, it's an open debate because I think on one side you can make the arguments you just made on the other side. It's like Michael played for just one team and took that team every year he played, Um, You know, I I just think other people will have some other favorite, you know, and and I just think it's a great argument because I love people talking about basketball players that way, because there have been so many great players down the pike that even trying to make the top 10. Like I was with Magic for three years. I saw Magic do things in practice that was never on film that I would look at Pat Riley and I'd look at Bill Burke the other assistant and go, we're the only ones that saw that. (laughs) because we weren't filming practice we're the only people in the world that saw that pass or that move you know and so i think you know magic to me is one of those guys that's never talked about as the as the goat
0: great point there and definitely jealous that you were able to go ahead and see uh witness all that great passing from the magic man himself and uh with that we've gone ahead and reached our halftime buzzer and we'll be back with you here shortly Welcome back. We'll get started here with our third quarter. And of course, Dave, Thursday brings this year's NBA trade deadline. So we want to ask you, being a former general manager, can you give us just a glimpse of what those final 48 to 72 hours are like before the deadline?
1: Sure. I think I think almost every front office is is sitting there when they get to that time frame and they're reviewing all the deals that they have discussed that they think they can do, that there's been some agreement on the other side that the parameters are pretty much set, or um, maybe they have to just uh, make the cap work a little better by changing players that were in the deal. So they're all talking about those deals. They're also still trying to do maybe some other deals, like we talked about with KD. So now, having seen Kyrie go, there's a lot of teams that, probably Sean was telling them KD is not available. And now they're trying to talk to Sean and say, Hey, is there a chance if I give you X, Y, Z? Because even, even with some of the players you mentioned, I think KD is going to, if you look at all the, the trades lately, the good ones, there's four or five first round picks involved in that deal. So you're seeing a lot of GMs trying to see what parameters they could put together for a deal um, with KD. And, you know, what, how, how many players of mine would I have to put in? Which ones would I be willing to throw in a deal? So I think there's these last minute, even though they've got some things that pretty much are outlines for what they'd like to do with the trade deadline that may not yet be set in stone. And sometimes those things, you know, go down to the last second. I'll give you a, an example. When I was the GM in Miami, Toronto was an expansion team coming in. So mm-hmm. they had to pick a player from each team for the player dispersal and they were going to have to pick from us. And we had two players that were available uh, that they could choose from. I'm not gonna tell you who the two players were. (laughs) One of them was a younger player, but the other player was an older vet, had millions left on his deal, and that's the one I wanted them to have to take. So I had to make a trade. I had to trade the other guy before the deadline so that there was only one player left they could take. And it went right down. Um, Wayne Embry and I, Wayne was in Cleveland, I think, at the time. We went down to the last five minutes before the trade deadline ended, and we finally agreed on a deal, and I was able to move that player in Toronto. I'm sure it was not very happy. They had to take <laughs> the veteran, and we got a couple million dollars off the cap and ended up being able to do some other things because of that.
0: Was Udonis Haslam on your team? I have to ask. I feel No, like Udonis,
1: been- came, Udonis <laughs> came after me, yeah. Um, but he's, that, he's- that,
0: that was more of a joke, just because that guy's been oh. on that team for like thirty <laughs> years. So <laughs>
1: yeah, he may he may be the oldest. Maybe his, they may let him stay on the roster until he's sixty. I think you know he's such a culture gotcha. guy for
0: them. Well, one of the things I like to do on the show, Dave, is kind of keep everyone on their toes. So I'm going to start with you here. Um, a few weeks ago, I made World B a GM for for certain teams around the league, but. One team that I've thought about specifically to ask you here tonight would be the Los Angeles Lakers. If you were the general manager of the LA Lakers right now, what would be on your mind come Thursday? What would you be trying to do? I would
1: seriously, and this is going to maybe surprise a lot of people, I would seriously think about trading LeBron. And I'll tell you why. Um, They have to have, I think, a really brutally honest internal discussion. Can they get someone in a trade this year or sign a free agent next year or the year after that can lead them to a title? I don't think they can. So if you can't win a title, the Lakers, that's in their DNA. I don't know if many people know the Lakers and the Celtics have 17 titles between them. Okay, but the Lakers have been in 32 finals out of their 75 years in the league. They've been in the finals 42 percent of the time they've been in the league. There are teams that haven't been in the finals once, okay? So they, they have a hard time thinking about anything, but we got to win a title. We got to win a title. LeBron, for the next three years, if you can't give him that kind of help, shouldn't be on your roster. You should move him because I think right now he'd have tremendous value. And I can think of teams like Toronto, the Knicks, mm-hmm. Phoenix, um, and there's probably one or two, even Golden State. And there's probably another one I'm missing, that you put him on that team, that team becomes a title contender, and you could get a bunch of draft picks back. You could get a couple good young players, and now you would have picks 25, 2025 through 2029 or 2030 still in your cupboard. You'd have 10 or 11 first-round picks. It's kind of what Danny Ainge is trying to do in Utah a little bit, and with the Clippers, um, we did this when we we moved CP and and Blake and. Uh, Redick, and DJ, um, we're out of the playoffs. Uh, we made the playoffs second year, the next year, but we're out the year after that. And then they got Kawhi and they got Paul George. So it's not like you're on a 10-year hiatus from starting your build back. And if you're not going to use, be able to use LeBron and win a title there, why don't you use his value to go on the road to build another title contender And it would also be good for LeBron. LeBron doesn't want to be on a team that's not going to win a title. You put him, imagine him in New York or somewhere like that. I mean, New York, they'd just go crazy there. Um, So I I think if that was me, that's who I would really be looking to make a deal.
2: So you mentioned Danny Ainge, your former colleague in Boston. uh, And he's at it again, as you said, in Utah, you know, trading veteran guys, stockpiling picks, whatever, like like trading an old guy like Rudy Gobert for way too many draft picks. It's shades of the whole, you know, moving guys like, you know, KG and Pierce and Jason Terry to Brooklyn for the picks that became Brown and Tatum. How does he keep doing How does he keep finding suckers, Dave? You only have
1: to find one. (laughs) You know, that's the thing. You don't have to find 30 of them. you just got to find one that's desperate, needs to make that kind of deal. And with somebody like LeBron, you're not, like, giving out – potential or or second secondhand goods. You're giving out a guy that's still throwing 40 on the board. Um and like if you look at the Knicks, uh, you know, Jason Brunson knows how to play with a guy that handles the ball a lot. He was with Luca. You know, you've got those three in Randall. You've got some other young guys. They could move Barrett and a bunch of picks or you know one of the other guys back. Um, I just think there's a lot of teams. You look at Toronto, they've got Van Vliet, they've got Ciecom, they've got um, Scotty Barnes, they've got, you know, so there's a lot of things that LeBron could probably command if you were really trying to work this. And I think it would be a way of, you know, you're paying LeBron back too. He's done a good job for you. He's been loyal, send him off to maybe a potential contender. And, you know, it's a win-win for everybody. It might take you two or three years to just be on the road back. Um, look at, look at even OKC, um, They've got, I don't know, they've got 700 picks in the last, in the next five drafts. <laughs>
0: yeah. I think, Yeah, I
1: don't think you can make a move in the draft unless you call, um, you know, them. So that's what I would well,
0: do. Well, I would say that the Lakers would certainly probably have to start uh, building a new arena, much like the Clippers are currently, because if that were to happen, I'm not saying you're wrong, Dave, but I think uh, Lakers fans would burn down the crypto.com center uh, if they made that trade. But. Wilder things have happened, so uh, we'll definitely have to keep an eye on on the Lakers and what they what they do at the deadline. They'll they'll certainly be a team to to watch out for. And Bruce, to kind of tag off, uh, Danny Ainge and Utah, they're going to be a fun team to watch here uh, near the deadline. I think they're going to be a team that tries to get involved as a third team to help make trades work in order to benefit with what they can get um, as part of you know participating and helping teams make certain deals. I know that they've already started uh, putting a couple names out on uh, the trade market and, and the one that I'm mostly interested in is Jared Vanderbilt uh, who they mm-hmm. acquired from Minnesota. I think he is a very talented piece that could help, you know, be a contributing role player on, on some of these playoff teams and uh, uh, I, keep an eye on Danny Ainge because I definitely don't think he's done trading uh, this season and he'll always look to try to cash in. So uh, glad that we, we brought him up. Um, world B, you have any thoughts on, on the, the trade deadline before we move on to our fourth quarter?
3: No, I'm just trying to uh enjoy the fact that Dave's put uh LeBron James on my on my Knicks here. I'm I'm oh, real yeah. excited about that one. I I would personally, I wouldn't wish it on LeBron for anything. I as much as I'd like to see him uh in the garden, I wanted to see him in the garden 10 years ago and it didn't work out, but uh, you know, I'm not sure I really want him to end his career. Uh, going head to head with James Dolan, but you know <laughs> if he can come there and bring a championship to the Garden. I'd I'd be uh, happy about it. I, I was actually curious uh, when you're in the Lakers' position or or Danny Ainge's position when it came to Rudy Gobert. You, obviously, you're not in the in the uh, in the room or whatever. Do teams call Danny, or is Danny calling teams about? Hey, I have Rudy Gobert. If he's a, if you were interested. Or the teams just, he's got a number of teams that have called in the past about Rudy and say, all right, I'm calling you back.
1: Yeah, usually usually what you'll do is every conversation you have with a a GM, you transcribe. And what the conversation was, what players might have been discussed. Um, Sometimes you're telling the opposing GM, hey, I have interest in these couple players. You may not be willing to move them now, but keep me in mind. Um, He'll say something about your players. You know, hey, I'd, I'd really like us to talk about this guy, and you might not be ready to move him, but you you make a note. And at the cert, at opportune times when those players may be more attractive to you or more attractive to him, that's when you'll go back. You'll see the who the uh, GMs were who were interested, um, and those are the guys you'll start conversations with, and it may lead to a you know a third team getting involved. Um, the guy who to me I think holds the record, which you got to watch Thursday, is I think. Uh, I think Daryl in Philly has the record for how many trades he's made that involve three or more teams. Um, every time he seems to make a deal around the trade deadline, there's four or five you know, teams involved in the trade. So I'm expecting to see if he does anything um, on the trade deadline.
0: And, and Dave, just kind of follow up on that, as far as the internal calls go with other teams, is that much like a poker game? Are you, are you throwing a ton of bluffs out there if someone – brings up a player um, that you're willing to move and you're like, ah, you know, that's a, that's a tough guy to ask for. Are you blowing smoke about other guys? Like great player. He, you know, he'd really fit your team. I totally agree. Like how much of that goes on? How much of it is it, is it a sales pitch?
1: Well, a lot of it is unless let's say you have a great relationship with a guy, you know, you're friends with him. You've done some deals in the past. You can kind of cut to the chase a lot quicker. Sometimes the deals come down to let's say it's going to involve draft picks but you want protection on the draft pick or he wants protection. And all of a sudden, Mm -hmm. well, I want protection one to 20. No, no. I'd give you one to five, you know, and now you're you're talking parameters until you both find something that um, makes sense. And you're looking at his team and figuring out if that draft picks in the future, a couple of years, where that, that protection would get you the pick as opposed to leaving you out of the pick um and some guys are really tough they they just they want to argue you down to the last possible I don't know if you saw a money ball when you had to fill the soda machines for the guy I mean they it's like it's it's like that and it's really hard to do a deal with some guys but uh, most of the time you get them sometimes the main thing out of the play way it's trying to fit into the cap rules trying to add which other players because sometimes you have to give up a, another player to make the deal work that you like or take back a player that you don't particularly like to get the bigger part of the deal.
0: Gotcha. And is, is there ever any spite? I mean, as far as, uh, you know, maybe not liking another uh, team or uh, ownership group or anything like that. Like, nah, I'm going to trade him to uh, the Nets. You know, I don't like dealing with the, the Knicks, for example. Like, I, I'm going to trade him to the Nets over the Grizzlies because I, I really want to stick it to them.
1: Well, we saw that uh, with the Kyrie trade. I think Joe Tsai yep. came out and yeah, said, um, true. I'm not trading him to the Lakers. Now, I don't know what's behind that. Maybe he was tired of the publicity that Ty- Kyrie was going to the Lakers. Kyrie wanted to go to the Lakers. Lakers were interested in Kyrie, none of which were direct quotes, but maybe he just got tired of that. And it usually used to be, I don't know as much anymore, as if you were an Eastern team you wanted to send your guy to the West and vice versa because you didn't want to have to play him during the season and have him lose some games because he played well against you or face him in the Eastern playoffs or something where, you know, he could stop you from getting to a title game. I I think that used to be a big factor. I don't know if it's that much
0: anymore. Good points there. And, uh, that leads us right into our fourth quarter here and, uh, want to focus in on some fight nights we had going around the league in the last couple of days. And uh, let's go ahead and start with the one in Cleveland. Uh, Dylan Brooks uh, falling to the ground and rolling on uh, Donovan Mitchell's ankle. Looked like it was pretty intentional there. Um, I certainly thought it was a dirty play and thought Brooks knew exactly what he was doing. So certainly I didn't have any issue with uh, how Donovan Mitchell responded in the moment. Uh, but Bruce, what do you think of that?
2: Well, I mean, you know, he nailed him in the nuts. I mean, you know, who's not going to (laughs) fight back when when you take one in the nads? I mean, you know, it's like, but, you know, it seems like Dylan Brooks is really becoming a little bit of a distraction around Memphis between that, between the little uh, deal a couple of weeks prior with Shannon Sharp at the uh, uh, crypto.com center. uh, And now the other night with Ja and his people getting into it, you know, uh, and, I mean, is, I mean, look, you love the guy's passion, right? And you love his grit and you like, you know, his toughness, although people are starting to say maybe he's a fake tough guy. So my thought is somebody's got to tell Dylan, you know, tap the brakes a little bit on this, you know, extracurricular stuff. That's my thought. Will B? Well, I mean, you know, to break
3: it down, it was a cheap play. It was a yeah. cheap play all around. And I was very surprised. I was, I was really surprised, given the game you're going to mention afterwards, the fight where you mentioned afterwards, that Dylan brought out one lousy game for that. I mean, where yeah. what, what's the, what's the detriment behind it? What, what's what's to deter him from pulling a stunt like that again? One game—that's all I get for hitting somebody, you know, where you're not supposed to hit them. I mean, yeah. sure, on one game, that'll teach me. I mean, come on, if you're gonna, if you're serious about, you know, putting an end to stupid stuff like that. And you know, even though I'm you know a fan from the Nick forever, I know about stupid stuff watching them play. <laughs> you know, but I understand if you want to do away with it, then you got to do something to do away with it. You got to make it the punishment fit the crime, so to speak. That was that was a real cheap play. It was just a really, um, it was a really
0: bad play. Dave, do you have anything to comment on that? Or yeah, uh, I, I agree with
1: one? that. I, I think you know if if um, they made the penalties harsher. Mm-hmm. Um, where um, you were going to lose one of your good players for three, four, five games, which could really impact where you finish in a year. Um, now all of a sudden peer pressure comes on, you know, the other players start coming up to him, Hey, you can't do that stupid stuff. The organization talks to him. I mean, I, I do think you know, a guy misses a game, he you know, other than the money, he's he figures it's hey, maybe I. I'm able to change the, the what's going on in the game with that or something like that. So I do think if they had stricter penalties and, you know, I, I guess they have to negotiate that with the players association and things, but I, I do think that's something that uh, sometimes seems unfair. One guy gets, you know, one game for that. And, you know, all of a sudden other guys will get two or three. So it's, it's, it's strange sometimes.
0: Yeah, that that's one. They definitely need to get worked out with the players association, as you mentioned Dave. I'm sure that's uh, easier said than done when trying to negotiate and have those conversations uh, with the players. Um, And um, the other one that I wanted to talk about was an even more unique scenario with uh, Austin Rivers being a player that was in the game at the time and uh, Mo Bamba being on the Orlando bench. And uh, Dave Worldby is kind of our uh, Orlando reporter on this show. So we'll go ahead and start with him. Uh, Will be. What do you think of Mo Bamba and the Austin Rivers altercation?
3: Well, first things first. Somebody point to me a uh, period of time when there wasn't a fight in the NBA or a fight in general that didn't start with something stupid. That was a result yeah. of something dumb. This is the personification of something stupid preceding, you know, a, a fight. I was. I don't know what was said. Well, we have some idea what was said, and it sounds kind of minor, whatever, but what is Austin and I'm not excusing Obama for anything you know, you get what you get, you don't come off and, and pull a stunt like that, but what's Austin Rivers doing, leaving the court to go across the sidelines to the other team, that that was uh, beyond dumb <laughs> I get understand. and you get what you get uh, on that uh, on that situation The the thing I have an issue with is just what we talked about a few minutes ago now, Obama got four games for that, and North Rivers, I think, got three. If I'm not mistaken, yeah. You're trying to tell me that yeah. was more egregious what happened there than what Dylan Brooks did? I mean, if you if you polled everybody in the NBA, every player, I would venture to say that what Dylan Brooks did would would lead all votes as far as the more egregious act, worthy of a longer suspension. So, I don't. My biggest take from all this is I don't understand what the reasoning is behind the suspension time.
2: Now, it, now, Dave. Now, Dave uh, has known the Rivers family. He's known you've known Austin basically since he was a baby, right, Dave? I mean, I, I've he's known other up-
1: kids since they were born because I've been friends with Doc for forty-seven or forty-something years. And what surprised me about this is, you know, I don't know if you knew it, but Austin, when he was in eighth grade, got voted by some recruiting thing or thing that he was the best eighth-grade player in the in the in the United States. I don't know how they figure that out, truthfully, but, you know, and and so Austin got tested all through his time in pickup games and everything. And the only way he reacted, he was kind of a quiet kid most of the time. The only way he reacted was he just went and scored on those guys. He just took it out on the court and didn't have to say anything. So when I saw this, I was really surprised because it just it just didn't seem like Austin. Now, supposedly he went over to Bamba and said, hey, like, you know, keep it professional or something like that. You know, but at that point, I'm surprised Austin even got there. Most of the guys have learned how to just let that stuff go, you know, especially if your personality is sort of like that. So that was a big surprise for me. But I do know that Austin's not backing down from anybody. So once he crossed that line, that kid was was in for 100 percent of whatever was going on.
0: And an interesting thing in that actual altercation um, was Jalen Suggs' reaction. Not sure if you guys caught that, but he came over to the opposing player in Bamba, or not Bamba, excuse me, in in Austin Rivers, put him kind of in a chokehold around the the neck and kind of threw him down. Dave, as a former player, um, you know, what do you think of that? Is that crossing the line as, you know, you should be going – trying to get your teammate away and keep your teammate safe and not further escalate things, but not, not as a, as a former executive, I'm thinking more so as your time in your playing days. I mean, did he cross a player line by, by putting his hands on the other player in this altercation? Or do you think, uh, you know, he, he had the right intentions in mind and it maybe just looked worse on video.
1: I think if his intentions were the right intentions, he would have grabbed Austin around the chest or something or grabbed, uh, you know, him around the arms and pulled him away. He didn't. He jumped on his back, arm around his throat. I thought that was an aggressive move. I thought he should have gotten at least three games too. Um, I'll give you a little bit of history of this. Um, When I was coming up, fights were almost daily, (laughs) daily occurrences. And as a coach, every coach I had before I got into the coaching side was if there's a fight, everybody leaves the bench and goes and helps your teammate, especially if it was down at their bench because you didn't want to leave your guy alone. So that's where the benches used used to empty like crazy. And when I got to be a coach, first thing I told my team, I said, if a fight breaks out, we're all going in, you know, go get your teammate, make sure no one's ganging up on them. OK. And then the league really got smart about it and they realized this this was really bad because, you know, you got some big guys trying to hit each other, too. So they put the thing where, you know, if you even left the bench and cross took a step onto the court, you know, you were going to get fined. So this was at the end of my career now as a player. And a fight broke out on the court. And, you know, the officials came to settle in and everything. And I'm playing, but it's near the end of my career. I'm not usually in the game and everything. So I get a letter from the commissioner's office stating that I'm going to be fined for the technical foul of leaving the bench to go on the court in in the game. So I wrote a nice letter back to the commissioner and I said, you know, I I realize my career is winding down, but I was actually in the game at the time. And if you check, I got a letter back about a week later, said we reviewed the film carefully and we can attest that you were in the game. So we're rescinding the fight.
3: So there's actual proof that you played.
1: Yeah. But you know, I've seen a number of fights. In fact, I'll tell you, I was in one, and it was hilarious. So my rookie year, it's the exhibition season. We're playing the Celtics, and they have a guy, Rex Morgan, who played for Jacksonville with Artis Gilmore. Some of you may remember his name, but yep. Rex is like a 6'5 guard, and we're on the weak side down on the baseline, and I've got my hand on him. I put my hand on his hip because we just hand-checked all the time back in the 70s. And um, Rex says to me, get your MF hand off me. And my teammates, I had Hal Greer and Billy Cunningham, Archie Clark. They told you right away, don't take your hand off if a guy tells you to take your hand off. So I've got my hand off, and I turn to him, and I just say, F you, okay? And I turn back to look at the ball. Next thing I know, Rex pulls a Suggs move. He's behind me. He's got me trying to put me in like a half Nelson. But his momentum took where I could flip him. So I flip him, and now I'm on top of him. (laughs) And I'm trying to get my arm loose to punch him. When all of a sudden we feel, I feel this gigantic weight lands on my back, and just flattens the two of us so we can't move. Don Nelson came over and sat on us.
2: Wow! And, and
1: literally, we were like pinned together, Rex and I, like this. And Nelly Nelly says, "Are you idiots done yet?" And we were done. He got up. We could finally get up. That was my, that was my fight. But I've seen a couple of them and. Bob Kaufman, uh, when I was with Buffalo, got into it with Joby Wright in Seattle. And I'm telling you, they could have put this on WWF. Um, they were picking each other up and body slamming each other into the floor. And nobody, nobody wanted to break it up. There was like a, a big circle around them. The refs wouldn't go in. We didn't go in. They finally got tired of just throwing each other around. And then everybody went and, and, and broke it up. And there was another one with uh, Buffalo uh, John Hummer. We were playing Detroit with Bob Lanier, and Hummer and Lanier got tangled up. And Bob shoves Lanier, and Lanier looks at him, and, and John kind of backs up, but he's dancing around like he's got his hands up, like you know he's shadow boxing or something. And Lanier starts coming to him, and John starts backing up down the court, but he's doing all this like shadow <laughs> backing up, he's backing up. Bob keeps coming, and I got to know Bob really well because he got to be on Milwaukee when I was assistant there. And finally, John realizes he's at the other baseline; he's got nowhere else to back up. So he just puts up his hands like this to Bob and kind of smiles. And, and Lanier just starts laughing. He just starts
2: laughing. <laughs> back up the court. So are you trying yeah. to say that those Ivy League guys? I mean, Humber went to Princeton, right? Those <laughs> yeah. Ivy League guys are just fake tough guys. I mean, and you would know, right, being a Penn grad yourself, yeah, right? Yeah,
1: <laughs> um, but the, the one I saw, Calvin Murphy knocked out a forward on Atlanta named John Brown. Somehow they got in some kind of mix-up, they separated, and John, who was 6'8 or something, John raises his fist, and Calvin was in a lot of fights, and Calvin literally threw two lightning-quick jabs right into his face, John went down to his knees and his hand was still there. His fist was still there in the air. <laughs> Calvin literally looked over at our bench and then popped him again. He <laughs> <went> carried <down and laughs> him off on a stretcher in his hand. like His fist was still like in, in position. But the worst was one with Tom Janovich who had been a teammate of mine. I mean, that's why you, we, you can't do it. You can't allow fighting because, I mean, Rudy got every bone in his face broken and he was really trying to just go in and break it up. But Kermit thought it was like a Jalen Suggs move. Somebody was coming in from behind and just turned and swung. It was it was awful. So I'm happy the commissioner finally put those rules in. And, um, you know, they got to hold guys to
0: it. Unbelievable. Uh, really appreciate you sharing those stories. I know our listeners will enjoy those as much as we have on tonight's show. Uh, one quick thing before we get to our fi- final thought. You mentioned Obviously, having known Austin Rivers his entire life, um, he recently came out. And I know that a lot of our younger generation uh, listeners would love to hear this. He now has his own podcast. And he had mentioned that, you know, when he was coming up, even just, you know, 10, 12 years ago, um, you know, you really had to earn a mixtape, you know, to get on YouTube and to to have a mixtape. You had to be one of the top probably 25 guys in the nation to have a mixtape. These days, kids coming up, everybody's got a mixtape. Your parents pay someone to have a mixtape. Everyone looks like they're the next Michael Jordan. What's your take on this new generation that's coming up? And is it harder to evaluate those guys despite having much more game film just based on all the highlights that are swirling around with social media? What's just your take? Do you agree with Austin as far as... Uh, the concerns that are raised with these guys don't know how to play basketball. They just know how to create mixtapes and highlight moves or um, just, just give us a feel for, for where you see this game going from a talent evaluation standpoint.
1: Well, I would tell you that um, a highlight reel might get you intrigued a little bit, but nobody's drafting somebody on a highlight reel. You know, you have scouting departments, you have friends, You know that you've made that uh, see a kid play every day whether he's in high school or you know you get to know the coach does he practice hard you're going to go to his games one a bunch of your scouts so they all have different opinions and now you can get a lot of actually game footage and that's the stuff that really tells you a lot because you can find out you know um what his skill levels are. You'll see things on a film where coach is talking to him on the bench and he's not even looking. I mean, because scouts really want to gather a lot of Intel for us. So, you know, the, the mixtapes, you kind of get a laugh out of, you know, a guy will do a special dunk or something, but it's like, okay, what does our scouting report say about him? And, and every team's like that. Nobody's drafting a kid, uh, especially nowadays where everybody sees everybody, you know, back, Back in the 70s and 80s, everybody had one scout out on the road. You know, there was no internet. So it was friend of a friend trying to tell you something. And the it was, you know, the draft was, I think, 19, 19 rounds my year in the 71, I think. In fact, I think I was telling Bruce this. I, I think that the NBA should do what they do with triathlons, that every guy that gets drafted, like in a triath- triathlon, if you finish You got your name, your finish, your time, what place. They should do that with the draft because the kid that got was the last guy in the draft my year was the 237th player taken. Okay, last guy in the draft. I I forget his name. I think it was Ed Ed Shaw or something like that. And I just think how many bar bets he could have won if he had that certificate, you know, when he's in his fifties, he goes into the bar and says, yeah, I was drafted in the NBA. No way. And all the cash is on the bar and he pulls out a certificate and he get drafted. I mean, I, I think they could, they should, they should give out the certificates.
0: Good point. Maybe that's something we can get in the future there, but thanks for sharing <laughs> that Dave. Uh, now we're going to get into our final thoughts here. It's been a long show, but definitely one that we've enjoyed, uh, and, uh, Bruce, I'll let you get us started here with your final thought, and Dave will let you go ahead and uh, go third here so you can get a gist of of, of how we do this. So, Bruce, okay. show us how it's done.
2: I'm concerned about Ja Morant. After the latest okay. incident on January 29th, some of Jaw's associates were involved in a dust-up with the Pacers during the game that resulted in Jaw's friend, whom he calls his brother, being banned from the FedEx Forum for a year. There was also a post-game confrontation involving Jaws people near Indiana's team bus. You'll recall that a few weeks prior, as we referenced early in the show, Morant's people, as well as Dylan Brooks, got into it with Shannon Sharp of Fox Sports at a Grizzlies-Lakers game in L.A. Now, Sharp apologized for his role in the melee, but when incidents like this happen more than once, I think it's going to start to take a little bit of a toll on Jaws. Uh, He seems to be innocent of any wrongdoing, but these events do nothing but hurt his image and could eventually cost him money and prestige. He needs to have a come to Jesus talk with his people and let them know that their antics are hurting him and they need to stop. World D, what do you have for a final thought?
3: Well, we led the show talking about the Kyrie Irving trade with the Nets and and the Mavericks, and uh, we talked about how it impacted both teams. And from a death perspective, it may seem like they have no shot at anything anymore compared with the superstar like Kyrie gone. But I'm going to let you know about a player that I think is an ace in the hole in this whole mix. And it's not Cam Thomas, even though he had 47 points on Monday against the, uh, the Clippers in a loss while we were taping this show. It's another 91 points in two games for him, by the way. But I think, A player that could really make a difference now that everything's settled, if he can get on the court, is Ben Simmons. And he's been much maligned for the last few years, and he's really – it seems like maybe he's even wearing out his welcome in Brooklyn because he just can't get on the court. And when he is on the court, he's almost a liability on offense. But I think his – the way the Nets are constructed now, I think he can be a lockdown defender to the point – well, he already is a lockdown defender – but to a point that he could really help the Nets go forward and not let this turn into a disaster of a se- of a season, because his combination with him and KD on the court—they've only been on the court for 30 games this year—but they're 20 and 10. The Nets are when they play, and when he's on, when the two of them are on the court, the Nets' offense is a, averaging 119 points per 100 possessions. And when he's off, the, when they're off the court or defense—I'm sorry, when it's defensive. Uh, efficiency is 109.7 when the two of them are on the court. That's a really solid number both ways. So if he can get back and get to be a lockdown defender with the other guys they have, I really think the net season is not lost, not only this season, but maybe
0: down the road in the future. Dave, what do you have for a final thought?
1: I want to tell you about the player I love to watch in the NBA more than any other guy. And that's Nikola Djokic of Denver. I just I just I can sit in front of a TV and just watch that guy, because if you're looking for someone who can affect a game in so many ways and is is redefining the center position in a lot of ways with his ability to just take a rebound, bring it up, throw a long pass. His passing is so much fun to watch. And I've always thought passing becomes contagious. It's one of the viruses you want to catch everybody on your team, but it makes everybody aware on every cut that they can get the ball back. He can score down low. He can shoot a three. He's slow. He's not killing teams with athletic. He's herky-jerky. And yet he every night, you just look at his his box score. It's almost a triple-double every night. And for someone who's always been just a fan of watching really good basketball players and how they can affect the game, I just enjoy him as much as I used to enjoy Ginobili.
0: Good final thought there, Dave. Thanks for sharing. And my final thought is actually, since this is our last show before the trade deadline, uh, my most memorable NBA trade deadline memory. And that undoubtedly came in 2015 when I was a member of the coaching staff in Phoenix, when the team traded Goran Dragic to the Heat, Isaiah Thomas to the Celtics. And in less than a year's time, I had been reunited with Brandon Knight, who was the key return to the Phoenix Suns. And uh, in that trade for Brandon Knight, the Suns also shipped out Miles Plumlee and Tyler Ennis to Milwaukee. Now, most NBA fans know how that one played out for all the big names involved. Um, and uh, what I really kind of want to get into here is how that played out for a good friend of mine and one of the NBA greats, Giannis Antetokounmpo. Now, it was a three-team deal uh, in, in that Milwaukee Bucks-Suns trade with the Sixers, and uh, Milwaukee got... Tyler Ennis, Miles Plumley, and also Michael Carter-Williams from Philadelphia, uh, and that single trade that single trade will forever be the biggest of my good friend uh, Giannis's life. And uh, I'll keep this short as I can, but Giannis went on to become very good friends with Michael Carter-Williams, and uh, Carter-Williams had bought a mansion in Milwaukee once he was traded to uh, the Bucks. And um, once he was traded, he rented it out to Mirza Telelovich for a little bit. But, you know, Giannis had gone over to MCW's house to to hang out with his good friend and, uh, you know, came to like the place. Well, Mirza went ahead and rented it for a year. Then Mirza was gone out of Milwaukee and Giannis had the opportunity to buy the house. So Giannis went ahead and bought the house that Carter Williams, a good friend of his, used to have him over at. And it's the house that Giannis still lives in today. And then the other factor in that trade is, uh, Tyler Ennis who had came over from Phoenix, uh, to Milwaukee, uh, Tyler Ennis, uh, was sitting at summer league with Giannis one day. And, uh, Giannis had his eye on, on a cute girl that was helping work summer league. And, uh, Tyler goes, uh, Hey, I know that girl, uh, had a connection with her. And, uh, that, uh, that led to Tyler introducing, uh, Giannis to this uh, mutual connection and, uh, that is now Giannis's longtime girlfriend and the mother of his two children. So, uh, not only was it a memorable day for me as far as all the big names we had traded out of Phoenix and the big shakeup around the league, and being part of that as a, a staff member on the Suns, but it will forever be a day that changed Giannis's life and uh, certainly one of the the best memories that I can think of. Come trade deadline, so. Uh, with that, that's going to do it for this edition. We want to thank Dave Wool for having us on tonight's show, and uh, really appreciate your time. And uh, thanks for tuning in to everyone. Thanks for uh, listening into this hardwood classic of an episode as we went deep into overtime. And we will be back with you on Friday. So make sure that you subscribe, and we hope you have a great rest of the week. Talk to you guys later.